Amen. Amen. Have you ever heard of Matthew Henry? He's a very famous Presbyterian, British Presbyterian pastor of the 17th and 18th centuries. Most notable was his claim to writing a large commentary on the whole Bible. It's probably the most famous commentary on the whole Bible that has ever been written, has received numerous endorsements through the ages. For example, J.I. Packer wrote about it, quote, simple and practical in style while thoroughly scholarly and well-informed for substance. The commentary remains an all-time classic, standing head and shoulders above any other popular expedition exposition produced either before or since. Recently, I heard a story about Matthew Henry that I found interesting. Uh, One time, he was robbed of his purse, which was, you know, a leather sack that people would carry around that had their money. So he was robbed of his purse, and then later he reflected on that event, and he said, quote, let me be thankful first because he never robbed me before. Second, because although he took my purse, he did not take my life. Third, because although he took all I possessed, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. So Henry found reasons to be thankful even after having everything he had stolen from him. Now, someone might hear that story and think, well, That's for super Christians like Matthew Henry, who wrote a famous commentary and was a notable pastor. That's not for the average Christian. That's just for the super Christians. Anybody here thinking that? Well, if you are, you are wrong. Because God expects every Christian to be thankful in all circumstances. Indeed, he commands us to be so. Now, in case you're still not agreeing with me, let me encourage you with something. What God commands, God empowers. What God commands, God empowers. In other words, if God commands us to do something, he also gives us the grace to carry it out. Today we're going to discuss three commands from our passage. In addition to giving thanks in all circumstances, we're also going to look at the commands to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing. But keep that in mind as we're going through this passage. What God commands, God empowers. So we're going to dig deeper into these commands, and hopefully each one of us will grow in our faith to be able to live out these commands and not regard them as just for the super-Christians, but for all of them who seek God's grace to live them out. Don't you want to be able to live out these things? Then let's do it. All right, so we're going to continue our series on 1 Thessalonians. So please turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, page 988, if you're using one of the Bibles. And I'm not sure what to do with the bottle now that I have it up here. I guess we'll just put it down here. Now, as I said last week, 
We're in the conclusion of this wonderful letter where Paul in this last section is covering the the conduct of the community. And Paul, when he gets to this last section, he writes in a different style than before. He, he, He utters a lot of brief commandments in verses 12 to 22. 17 commands and those few verses. Now these commands are not just haphazard grocery list bullet points. They actually cohere together around four areas. The first two areas we talked about last week, that dealt with the relationship between the church leaders and the church members. We also talked about the relationship between church members. Those were the first two areas. The area today about community conduct is godly actions in the community. Next week, we're going to explore the fourth area, which is prophecy. Now, originally, I leaned toward including this week's focus on godly actions together with next week's. But it seems like it's enough of its own section. But I want you to understand that it still fits together. These kind of flow together. And you say, well, what do I mean? Well, next week's topic is prophecy, prophecy with a lot of focus on the Holy Spirit. This week's area, godly actions, is also empowered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're told for the first, uh, first commandment there is to rejoice always. Where does that joy come from? We know that Galatians 5 says that part of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. It comes from the Holy Spirit. So the bottom line is all of these commands are not just random, but they're focusing on the community conduct of the church. And today's focus is on godly actions in the community. Everybody see that? So let's move on here. This first godly action is found in verse 16. Very simply, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Now, did you know that joy is an incredibly important part of the Christian life? You see this just by noting how many times it appears in Scripture. The word joy appears 171 times. The word rejoice, 100, excuse me, 200 times. Just to give you perspective, the word grace appears 164 times. I'm not saying joy is more important than grace, but I want you just to see how often Scripture speaks about the importance of joy. And joy is an essential part of being a Christian. It's not optional, but it is an expectation. Philippians 4.4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So Paul commands us to rejoice, and he repeats himself for emphasis. And just to be reminded of the fact that that wasn't probably easy for Paul. Paul, it seems like this guy was always facing hardships from outside the church or even inside the church. Paul was always embroiled in opposition, yet he always was rejoicing. I mean, he had just been chased out of three of the last four cities where he ministered, yet he's calling us to rejoice. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, what is joy? Well, joy is a deep abiding satisfaction in God. Joy is integrally connected to God. As Paul said there in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. Now, on one hand, that means that God is the object of our joy. 
We were made to know and to love God, right? God created us to know him. That famous Westminster Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy him forever. Because of our sinful nature, though, we don't naturally enjoy God sometimes. We need a new nature that loves and worships God. And when this happens, happens, God becomes the greatest object of our joy. He is what we should find the greatest delight in. So God is the object of our joy, but he's also the source of our joy. In other words, God creates in us a desire to delight in himself. Back in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, it said, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy came from the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So from beginning to end, friends, our joy revolves around God. And so having that in our mind, it then helps us understand what is the difference between joy and happiness. Both of these words speak of having a glad disposition. But there is a crucial distinction, and that is this. Happiness is rooted in our circumstances while joy is rooted in God. Happiness is a momentary emotion that can change like the weather. A student might be happy that they got an A on that exam. Then they go to the next class and fail that one. Or an actress might be happy that she nailed that scene perfectly and then she flops, though, the next scene. You might be happy thinking about the day that's ahead of you and then you look outside and you see what? More raid. Happiness is here one moment and gone the next. It cannot withstand the ups and downs of life, especially when we get really bad news, like a layoff or a bad doctor's report. Joy, friends, is rooted in God, not our circumstances. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that is why you can rejoice always, because it is not based on your circumstances, but it is based in God. So let me talk about growing in joy. How do we grow in joy? And yes, you can grow in joy. That's what's so wonderful about it is that it is not a personality trait that you're sort of locked into, but it is a choice that a Christian makes in developing a joyful, glad, deep-seated peace with God. So you say, well, how, how does this happen? Well, it's interesting that Adam brought that whole notion of, of this, our hearts and having a certain amount of space in it, because that's exactly what I was going to talk about in my message here, that when we think about our hearts, our hearts do have just space in them, and we can only fill them with so much, right? And whatever we put into them, that means there's some of that and less of other things, right? So imagine in your mind the way I like to visualize it is a water pitcher, an empty water pitcher, Now, whatever you decide to put in there, there's going to be less of whatever else you put in there, right? So if you fill it with a bunch of ice, that means there's going to be less of it for iced tea or whatever, right? 
And it's the same thing with our heart. If our hearts are filled with God and joy that comes from that, then the things that would detract from that joy, there's just less of it there, right? But if your heart is constantly fixated on things like your muffler or whatever, (laughs) or other things that are going on, you're going to crowd God out, right? If that picture is just filled with this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing, your joy will be squeezed out. So we need to fill our hearts with God and his joy. You need to think hard and meditate on those things. Think about those bedrock truths of the Christian life. Not that you just sign off on them, but that you become, they become part of who you are. Think about the greatness of God who made this vast, beautiful universe. Think about the glory of Christ who humbled himself, laying aside that divine majesty to come here for you and I and to die on the cross so that we might be reconciled. Think about how God drew you, even though we weren't seeking him, but he patiently drew us to himself and wipes away all of our sins when we call on the name of the Lord. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 10, 20? When he told the disciples after they'd performed all these miracles, he said, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Think about how he gave you a new heart and mind that longs for the things of God instead of the things of the world. Think about how he gives you his Holy Spirit to empower you and to guide you. Think about how he gives you a peace that if you were to die today, that you can know you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. Think about those things. Fill your heart with those things. And friends, that's where the the significance of daily Bible reading comes into play. We have to be able to take in these truths because sometimes you start your day and boom, before you know it, all these things are happening. We need to fill our minds with these truths. You say, well, I don't have time to do that. Well, if you don't, then you're not going to be able to rejoice always. That's just the way it is. But friends, let me encourage you to start today. Don't say, you know what, I really would like to be a more joyful person one day when life kind of slows down a little bit. It never will. Or don't think that I have to be perfect overnight or else it's not even worth trying. No, we can grow in this, can't we? Or don't think that, you know what, I'd be afraid to start being really joyful because people might start noticing a change in me that I'm not the same as I used to be. That's where we are focusing on pleasing the Lord first and not others. Who cares what they think? But more than likely, they're going to say, what has been going on inside of you? I'd like to know more about it. Gives you a great opportunity right there. So friends, each day presents a new day to rejoice always. As Psalm 118, verse 24 famously says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So rejoice always is the first commandment that is given here. The second is pray without ceasing. Again, very simply, it says in verse 17, pray without ceasing. By the way, if you want to start memorizing scripture, These two verses would be a great place to start, right? I mean, you got two verses right under your belt to start. Two verses, very, some of the shortest verses in the Bible. You can say, I got two verses I memorized today. 
There you go. So what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Well, I don't think it means that we're to pray 24 hours a day because else we would die, right? You have to eat. You have to drink. You have to sleep. He's not talking about that. But what he is talking about is a constant prayer mindset, a mindset of prayerfulness, not every waking moment, but praying throughout the day. Praying throughout the day. And I think that would mean that there are different types of prayers that we're going to be praying as we go throughout our day. Maybe in one moment you're praising God because you just are thinking about the glories of salvation and what he's done for you, and so you praise him. Maybe at another moment of the day you're you're struck by something sinful that you thought about or that you did, and so you ask for confession. That's part of prayer. Or maybe you're just thinking of a need in your life and you're presenting that to the Lord or someone else who's in need of prayer and you're interceding for them or you're thankful for just things that are going on in your life or thinking about the past or whatever and so your attitude is just full of joy and gratefulness to God. It's just a, it's just a conversation. That, thing, that kind of mindset of prayer could just go on and on throughout the day. We should pray without ceasing. And again, I'm struck by the example of Paul. On the screen are some verses that I hope we'll have up there that emphasize Paul's vigilance in prayer. Let's make it. Well, Romans 1.9, Philippians 1.4, 9 to 11, Colossians 1.3 to 9, 1 Thessalonians 1 to 2, 3 to 10, 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 to 12, 2, Th- 2 Timothy 1, 3, and, and Philemon 4. They all are examples of Paul constantly. He's saying, I'm constantly praying for you. These were all different churches and individuals, and Paul was praying for them. And I'm struck by the fact that even churches that Paul had never even been to or met before, like in Rome or Colossae, he says he's always praying for them. Deeply humbling to read about this man's prayer life. And not only did he model it for us, he commands us to be doing likewise. He says in Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18 says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. God's people need to be praying without ceasing. You say, well, why? Well, I think you give a lot of reasons why. But two really jump out to me. The first is this, communion with God. I think one of the most profound thoughts in the universe is that the God of this whole universe wants to commune with you. He wants to spend time with you. Never let that thought get old to you. I think it's the foundation of the Christian prayer life, is that just knowing God wants to spend time with us and that we can spend time with him instantly. There's never a wait list, right? There's never a delay. You don't have to go through any rituals or sacrifices. Now, because of Christ, we have full access when we pray to God. And you can share anything with God. There's no burden too great, and there's nothing that he cannot heal you of. The 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said, quote, there is greater rest and solace to be found in the presence of God for one hour 
than in an eternity of the presence of man. That's so true. So knowing that God wants to commune with us should want should stir us to want to spend time with him, right? Let me get practical when we talk about praying without ceasing. On one hand, I think it's important for Christians to block off a time of the day when they can have prayer with God undistractedly. You see this model with Jesus, don't you? He would get up while it was still dark and get away from the disciples, and he would go spend time in prayer. We need to allow God time to speak to our hearts in, a, in, a, in some moments of silence. And so I think it's important to block off some time every day, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, sweet hour of prayer, whatever it might be, wherever God is leading you, but there should be that regular time of prayer. But I also think we should pray throughout the day Prayer is a both and, right? It's not, oh, I'm going to pray in the morning, but then the rest of the day I don't really pray. Or it's not, I'm going to pray all day, but not really have that time where we focus with the Lord. I think prayer is a both and. We should converse with the Lord as you would speak with your best friend. He wants to spend time with you. And we should do so throughout the day. How are you doing with that? The both end of that. Well, I would say for me, my weakness would be with the constant prayer. I'm pretty good about having a fixed time where I will pray to the Lord. But sometimes I just get so fixated on my life and situations and my tasks that I just sort of forget about the Lord in a real focused sense. And so I know for me this week, just being immersed in this passage, constant prayer was at the forefront of my thinking. And let me tell you, I was so glad. Being in communion with God is the way we're supposed to live. Praying without ceasing. The second reason to pray without ceasing is to avoid temptation. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us away from, lead us not into temptation, excuse me, but deliver us from evil. And as I pointed out before, it's probably better translated, deliver us from the evil one, right? Meaning Satan. Friends, we need to depend upon God to lead us away from the temptations of Satan. Yes, it's helpful to pray at the start of the day, but there will be things throughout the day that will come along where Satan has schemes and devices for each one of you. Did you know that? Where he wants to make you fall. I think we would all agree that we're much more likely to trip and fall when we're not paying attention, right? I was watching a video of people walking around who were on their phone. This kind of funny clips of people walking around either texting or talking. People were doing the craziest stuff. Walking into elevator doors. Tripping over a pool at the, at the fountain in some type of shopping center. Going right into the water. Another guy went right into a swimming pool. People walking into oncoming traffic and almost getting killed by a car. All because they're looking down at their device. They weren't paying attention. And then, boom, something happened. Same way in the spiritual realm. Same, same thing. 
you will fall or be much more likely to fall if you are not alert. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus told the disciples right before they were about to desert him, he'd already told them that they were going to desert him, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane. And he told them when he went off to go pray, he said these words to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Friends, if we pray without ceasing, we will, I think, a lot of times just avoid temptations that we'll never even know about because we just were following God and seeking him, and he'll just take us away from the minefields. And then in other cases where we do actually encounter them, we'll be able just to simply walk around because we're praying without ceasing. Third command here is give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So friends, we should be thankful. Not just on the good days. But on the so-so days. And on those rotten days. Christians should be characterized by gratitude. Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.6 and 7 says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Friends, so our thankfulness should abound. But we know that's not always easy, right? Our sinful nature gravitates towards the opposite. Our, Our default mode is often to complain, right? complain about our health or the finances or the car or the co-workers or our boss or our work environment or the weather or our kids or our parents, our neighbors, and so on. And we complain about a lot of stuff in life. And as we do that, you know what we're doing? We're actually robbing God of his glory. God doesn't want us to live this way. Going back to verse 18, we should thank God in all circumstances. And notice that he says that we should... He doesn't say that we should thank God for all circumstances, right? It doesn't say you should thank God for that illness or that relationship struggle, that financial problem. We don't delight in the pain itself, but we do thank God in those circumstances. In the midst of those trials, we should still thank God. You say, well, what are we thanking him for if things aren't going so good? Why, as I pointed out earlier with Matthew Henry, there's always things to be thankful for, right? If we would just look close enough, God is always good, even in these situations like having everything you have taken from you. There are still reasons there. It depends on whether we see them. But even beyond that, let me mention three reasons that I think are applicable in every situation, kind of bedrock truths. First, God uses all circumstances to make us like Christ. God saved us to become like Christ and uses every circumstance, good and bad, to become like Christ, to accomplish this purpose. Romans 8, 28 to 29, familiar with it, but let's hear it again. 
We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So our purpose is to become like Christ and God uses every circumstance to bring that about. No matter how painful and how difficult. For example, those trials, they should, they're designed to deepen our dependence on God and love him more and strip away the idols, even idols that we don't know that we have sometimes, and put God in the place that he belongs. Second, difficult circumstances deepen our desire for eternity. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18 says, For this light momentary affliction is prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Difficult circumstances, you know what they do? They wean us from being overly preoccupied with this world. Yes, we are to be very concerned about the world, to be faithful and to be faithful with the people in our lives and the families and the friends and the church and so forth. But we also need a constant reminder that this world is fleeting. This is not the final home. Our true home is that new creation that Jesus is going to establish when he returns. Amen? And so the, these trials, they wean us from the world and help us to long for something lasting and eternal. Amen? And so the death of loved ones deepens the desire to be in a place where there is no more death. The pains of life deepen a desire to have God one day wipe away every tear. The sins of our heart deepen a desire to be rid of them one day. The loneliness of life deepens and stirs desires to be in fellowship with God, who alone can satisfy our hearts and to be surrounded by a company of endless and innumerable saints of God for the rest of eternity. And then third, no circumstance will separate us from God. As bad as a circumstance may appear, God is with you in that circumstance. That's a promise from Scripture. He is with you during that circumstance, and he will never allow the trial to sever that relationship. Romans 8, 37 to 39 says, now, no, in all these things, and he's talking about a whole list of different hardships, different trials. He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you see how you're able to thank God in all circumstances? The last part says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, more than likely, Paul is not saying that just giving thanks is the will of God. He's actually speaking about all three commandments because of the way all those three are lined up together. There's another reason. It's a little bit more technical Greek grammar. Won't get into that. But 
all of those three commandments are the will of God for your life. God wants his people to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. It's a high calling, but remember, what God commands, he empowers. Amen, church? Let us pray. Lord, in just a brief span of time, brief amount of space on a piece of paper, you've given us these words to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances, and that this is the will of God for our lives. God, my simple prayer is for each one here today that you may give us a heart that seeks after these things. May it be our heart's desire to live out these commands, to see the goodness of them, to see that it is good to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. So Lord, by your grace, we ask that you would help us to live them out. And Lord, we know that it is indeed by your grace and your grace alone. And Lord, we know that it is your grace that changes a heart from one that does not seek God to one that truly knows you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, that's also my prayer as well. For someone here today who's been hearing these things, but yet doesn't have that heart to do so, but yet wants to know you, Lord, in the stillness of this moment, may they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. and Believe in their heart that you were raised from the dead the Bible promises they will be saved. May today be that day of salvation. Someone turns from their sins and believes that Jesus is Lord of their lives. Lord, may you give them that new heart that seeks to live out these commands for your glory and for your honor. We love you and we praise you, God. Thank you for this time in your word. All God's people said, amen.